0: So tonight, we're going to wrap up the first prologue in Judges. This is actually part five of the first uh, prologue. And we need to do a bit of a recap tonight. And the reason for that is that the ending of this prologue really weighs very heavily on what has gone on before in chapter one that we've already covered. And to make it make a clearer sense to you, I'm going to go over some of the things um, before we get into the the new section. Um, So the first prologue in Judges, all of chapter 1 that we've covered so far, is a survey of um, Israel's fortunes after the death of Joshua. And and it begins, positively enough, um, in the chapter with the Israelites consulting Yahweh, with the, with the tribes, specifically Judah and Simeon, cooperating, and families functioning normally. But even so, as we've gone through this chapter, we've seen evidence of unfulfilled commitment, incomplete obedience, and compromising tolerance. Even when the Israelites gain the upper hand over the Canaanites, who they've been commanded to drive out of the land, they refuse, the Israelites refuse to carry out Yahweh's agenda. Instead of reshaping the world after the image of Yahweh's will, they live in and with the world. And before long, they've taken on the characteristics of the world. Instead of making this land the land of the people of God, they themselves have become like the people of the land. This not only explains why the time of Judges turned out to be so dark, but also serves as a permanent reminder for us of the deadly consequences of compromise and disobedience. This is something that all people who claim to be the people of God must understand and must recognize. And at the same time, this chapter that we've gone through, if it announces that anything positive is accomplished by God's people, it's clear it's because of Yahweh's gracious presence and his action on his people's behalf. So as we go into the ending of the first prologue, we're going to see it continues into chapter 2 of Judges. It's the first five verses of chapter 2 and this is kind of peculiar you might ask why is this well as many of you know the bible in its original form what we call the autograph um, which is no longer in existence we just have copies manuscripts of the original autographs there was no chapter breaks and there were no verses in that so these things were added later and as odd as that seems to us When the original inspired word was put down, it wasn't broken into chapters. It wasn't divided into verses. And what we end up having when we have chapter breaks is that we have a person other than the human author of the scripture interposing on what the original human author's thoughts are, where it should break. Now, chapter um, numbering and versification is extremely helpful. It'd be difficult, I think, for us to get by without it. I could only imagine sitting in church and listening to a sermon and having the preacher say, turn to Isaiah 47 verse 8 and having to find that in a Bible without without chapter and verses. So it's very beneficial, Um, but... At the same time, I want us to realize that there are instances where it makes it, um, it's interposing, let's say, an artificial system into the text that ne- isn't necessarily there. That's why we have this first prologue continuing on into the second chapter. This, is, does, this is, would not be natural. It, the, the first prologue, you would think, would end with the end of chapter one. Well... It's like outlining a paper, if you recall, doing that in school. You know, there's different ways to outline things, right? Everybody might have a different outline from the same story, the same account that they have read. So the person who, who came up with the chapter breaks had a completely different idea in mind when they were dealing with this book than the idea that I have. And that's fine. We just have to kind of understand that. Um, So you may be wondering, and if you're not, I'm going to tell you anyway, where where the chapters and the verses uh, came from. Well, the, the chapter breakdowns in the Bible came about in the 13th century. So this was very late after the writing of the Bible, right? And this was from the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man by the name of Stephen Langton. And Langton was writing a Bible commentary at the time. And he needed a way to direct people to smaller sections of Scripture as he's writing the commentary. So he comes up with these chapter breaks. And it worked well. And there was a good reason for him doing that. It didn't harm God's Word. But just like versification, which came along later in the 16th century with a Parisian printer named Robert Estienne or Robertus Stephanus in Latin. Estienne came up with this idea of adding verses because he was um, originally, he was working on a concordance And he needed to be able to direct people to smaller sections of Scripture rather than chapters, like a verse or two at a time, what we would call a verse. So he put in this versification system. And in 1551, he was the printer who printed Erasmus' Greek New Testament. And when he printed the 1551 version, SDN put in versification. So this was the first time the Bible had verses in it. Well, the first very well-known widespread Bible that was printed on a printing press was the Geneva Bible. And it took diversification and it turned each verse into a separate paragraph. Now, what that does is it completely destroys the thought process that you're following as someone is writing if you're seeing a paragraph break down with each verse. When we read a novel or a biography or something of that nature, and we come to a new paragraph, what do we think? Well, completely new thought, right? And so that's the way that we can approach the Bible if we're not careful. So there is an interesting way to get around this. Now, I think when you're doing your studying, when you're coming to church, as I said, these chapter and verses are invaluable. But when you're doing your daily reading, you know that we have a tendency because we're dealing with chapters and verses that we're breaking down God's word into segments. This is today's segment of God's word, this is tomorrow's segment of God's word, and sometimes we find ourselves rushing to get through that. Well, what I've tried and what a suggestion For your daily reading, when you just want to read God's Word, there are Bibles that are printed without the verses, without the chapters in them. Like Crossway has one, that's what I have, and it's called the Reader's Bible. And it's interesting to read God's Word without that. It's like reading another piece of literature. And it takes away this idea of, okay, here's one verse, I've got X number of verses to go. It's like reading a book. God has given us a book. And unfortunately, what has happened, because of these aids that we put into the Bible, we've turned the Bible into a book made for referencing rather than a book made for reading. So, just a suggestion um, when you do your daily reading, and I hope you're doing your daily reading, um, I, I strongly urge you to read daily. I like to read cover to cover. Uh, Each year I read through the Bible. There are some people I know that like to read a bit of the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, and Proverbs. I think that's a great way to read the Bible also, if you know the story of the Bible. If you're not completely in tune with the story of the Bible, then I urge you, try reading at least once cover to cover so you get the the, uh, whole story. So now, back to our text in hand. Judges chapter 2, and I'm going to read the rest of the first prologue, which is just five verses, as I said, verses 1 through 5. Please follow along with me as I read it. <clears throat> now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim, and he said... I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Probably the first thing that needs to be answered here is, who or what is the angel of the Lord in verse 1? The Hebrew phrase used here is malach Yahweh. It's used in reference to God, Yahweh, who is made visible or embodied. We see this phrase frequently in the Old Testament, particularly Genesis and Exodus. And often the accounts in which it is used blurs the distinction between Yahweh and his angel, the angel of the Lord. A great example, I think, of this is the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 7, and if you turn there with me, um, I will point out as we go through it the different terms that we find that are inclusive of the Lord our God. So Exodus 3, 1 through 7... Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, here Malach Yahweh, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and beheld, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord, that's Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to see, God, Elohim, in other words, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God Elohi of your father, the God Elohi of Abraham, the God Elohi of Isaac, and the God Elohi of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God Elohim. Then the Lord Yahweh said, and then the account goes on. So in this one example, we can see that the angel of the Lord is connected with the broad-sense universal term for God, which is Elohim, and a specific form of that term referring to the God, which is Elohi, and the covenantal name for the God of Israel, Yahweh. All in there. And as we went through it, did you notice how the personages are blurred. They're not distinct as to who is where or what. It seems to be that it's one being that is speaking. And this being refers to this place, this burning bush, as holy ground. Now, you know, when, we, when, we, when we, we're dealing with um, normal angels, if there is such a word, or your, your, your lesser angel in biblical accounts that those angels are always very, very clear to the human beings that are, that are they are interacting with that they are not, the angels are not to be worshipped. They are not to be regarded as divine in the sense that God is divine. They're very careful to tell humans don't do that, don't bow down to me, you know, I am one of your, I am just a brother like you. But here, there's a sacredness that's going on. That's, that's the point I'm trying to get across. And in Exodus, <clears throat> further on, we see in, in chapter 23, verses 20 to 24, there's references to this angel specifically in the context of the conquest of Canaan, which we're in, in Judges. That's, this is the time uh, of, of Joshua, in the time of Judges, and this angel, when I read to this section, notice these things about this angel. This angel of the Lord. This angel is to be obeyed. This angel possesses authority, which if not honored, constitutes rebellion. And this angel has the authority to withhold forgiveness for the sin of disobedience. This does not sound like your quote-unquote normal average angel. So Exodus 23, beginning with verse 20, reads, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression." For my name is in him now this is interesting. The term here in Hebrew is Hashem. Now, the religious Jews, as you know, undoubtedly, they would not pronounce again uh, later in the rabbinical period they They stopped pronouncing the name yahweh they uh, They decided that there there was a potential for unintentional sin, if, the, if it was pronounced wrong. And the pronunciation had actually been lost because Biblical Hebrew, after the exile, kind of died out. So, that's when the term the Lord started to be used, or Hashem, the name. Now, this opens up a whole nother thing that's called the, the name theology. And the interesting thing is that in the Old Testament in Isaiah in the Psalms there are places where the human author writes when referring to the Lord God Yahweh God of Israel he refers to God as the name and in these instances where he ref- where the authors refer to God as the name there's an implication of physical embodiment there. And then we see this in the New Testament where Jesus carries the name of God. So there's this there's a connection there, a theological connection that 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 can be made. <clears throat> but going on with Exodus chapter 23 verse 22 but if you, if you carefully obey his voice, this is the angel that God's talking about, and do all that I say, notice that, obey the angel and do all that I say, a blurring again, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel go, goes before you and brings you to the now here's a list of all of these clans that, were, that they're dealing with in Canaan. The Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. This is the command of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is obviously very much involved in this process that, that God is ordering the Israelites to undertake. And the wording that we found here is very reminiscent of the Gospels. Um, specifically, I'm thinking uh, the second chapter of Mark, beginning in verse uh, 5, where Jesus heals the paralytic and declared that the man's sins were forgiven. And the Pharisees, they went crazy over that, didn't they? Why did they go crazy? Because no man can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Well, the Pharisees were absolutely right in their theology. They were wrong in their personage of who they thought Jesus was, but they were right in their theology. And Jesus, as his earthly mission proceeded, showed that he had such authority to forgive sins. He demonstrated very clearly that he was God come in flesh and thus had this authority. So this same thought process really is applicable to the angel of Yahweh here. So in verse 1, we read, Now the angel of the Lord went up. In verse verse 1 of chapter 2, And we should notice immediately there are parallels to the beginning of this prologue, the beginning of the book of Judges. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 reads, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So Israel inquires of the Lord, who shall go up? The Lord commands them, Judah shall go up. And go up they do. Judah gains a great victory, driving out the wicked inhabitants of the land. And immediately, they took upon themselves the Canaanite wickedness. Disobeying the Lord, they allowed the ruler of their vanquished foes to live in order that they may inflict pagan torture upon him. And this is the beginning of the canonization of the Israelites. As they attempt to drive out the wicked pagans of the land, in accordance to God's commands, the Israelites take on the practices and customs of these wicked people. And we read in verse 6 of chapter 1 that others are allowed to go up with the Israelites. And that verse says, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah. And as Judah goes up, in accordance with Yahweh's commands to drive out the Canaanites, they take along with them a group of outsiders. Even though they're related to these outsiders through marriage, so they're not complete outsiders, right? They're, you know, they're like in-laws. You know how in-laws are. They're... Kind of out. But they're kind of in. But the important thing is these in-laws are not covenant people. They are not of the covenant of Yahweh. They have not been chosen by God to be amongst his people with whom he has entered into covenant with. Yahweh never makes covenant with the Canaanites. He never directs the children of Israel to bring these outsiders into covenant. And what we find is the Kenites, surprise, surprise, quickly abandon their alliance with Judah. They go up with them and then they kick them to the curb, so to speak. Perhaps, because it why? Because it suited them to do so. Perhaps the grass looked greener to them as they went up. After all, this was the land of milk and honey, right? And the Kenites were asked to accompany the Israelites by Moses as they set out on their wilderness journey, because the Kenites, according to Scripture, knew the location of the oases and the water wells in the wilderness, and they could lead the Israelites through there. Oh, boy! They didn't know what they signed on for. A quick journey through the wilderness turned into what? Forty years. 40 years with a bunch of bickering stiff-necked backstabbing rebellious people. I have to have sympathy for the kenites. I could imagine. It was like we all have we all have people in our family, right, that that you know, we are distantly related to and you can't even imagine being on a car trip with them for a couple of days. Imagine being in the wilderness in the desert for 40 years with them. So, okay, that's understandable why the Kenites like you know what? No, we're get, we're getting out here and we're 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 moving in, we're living amongst these people we've had it with you. But the problem is is that that's a human response. The problem is is like I said they're not part of the covenant. So they don't have the same direction, the same objectives. They don't owe the same loyalty that the Israelites owed and as we saw or as I told you that we will see, that they, they jo- joined in with the enemies of the Israelites, and they will themselves, the Canaanites, will themselves later become enemies of the Israelites and create problems with them. And last week, we saw another Israelite coalition that went up In the land of Canaan, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel. This is the coalition of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, descendants of the sons of Joseph, grandsons of Israel. And recall how they cut a deal with the man of Bethel. The house of Joseph was told to seize Bethel and devote it to destruction. This is a, a mighty fortified city, according to the text. And they can't figure out how to get in. They see a guy from the, that lives in the city who comes out of the city walls. And they, they nab him and they make a deal with him. Hey, can you get us in? Show us how to get in. Yeah, well, what do you do for me? Tell you what, we'll let you and your family go. Everybody else, everybody else, they're going to be goners. But you, you get a chance. You cooperate. He's Yep, I'll take that deal. So they allow this guy to leave. They seize the city, they devote it to destruction, and this fellow, he travels north into the Hittite country and he builds another city. He builds another Luz, which was the pagan name for Bethel. So the Israelites just allowed these wicked seeds of paganization to be transported out of Canaan to someplace else. It's like when you come into California and you go to that agricultural checkpoint. You know what that's for, right? Is try to keep parasites and pests from coming into our state in agriculture, right? So this is kind of the same thing, but a spiritual thing. Well, the, the, it's like if the agricultural inspectors are just like waving in a produce truck from an area that they know to be infected with a with a dastardly parasite, they just wave them in. No, you don't. You're you're fine. Keep going. Keep going. And next thing you know, we have an infection. Well, this this, in effect, is what the Israelites did in Bethel. And it's not as though the Lord sent his people off on their own. He just didn't turn them loose and hope that, you know, it would work out for the best. No. We read in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, "...the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron." And then three verses later, in verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. We just talked about that. The Lord was with them. Think about this. Even in their failure, the Lord was with them. Even in their disobedience, the Lord was with them. When the Lord called Joshua to lead the people after the death of Moses, the Lord promised, I will not leave you or forsake you. When Jacob encountered the Lord at Bethel in a dream, we read in Genesis, God told him, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. When the prophet Isaiah is told of the of the coming Assyrian invasion, and that Judah, the nation of Judah, will barely survive, he's also assured of a future victory. Because, as it says in Isaiah chapter 8, because God is with us. In Hebrew, this is Emmanuel. The fulfillment of God with us is in an account that we all know and love dearly. It's with the birth of a boy whose adoptive father, Joseph Nazareth, was told by an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, another angel, to call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this Jesus, the embodiment of God with us, he made a very, very big promise Matthew tells us this at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. How long is that? Man, that's as long as any human being is going to be alive. Jesus will always be with his people. This, This brings us to our first point that I've been building towards. Even though we may stumble... Even though we may lapse into temporary disobedience, our salvation is assured. In the failures we've seen already in Judges, we are told that the Lord was with his people. This did not excuse their intentional disobedience. Don't get me wrong. The Lord wasn't happy with them. He was there with them. And there were consequences for them. There was a price that they were going to have to pay. Just like there are consequences for us, even though we are God's elect, even though we are saved by the blood of Christ, if we sin, there are consequences that we must face. But when we sin, we know what we are to do, we are to repent. And turn from that wickedness and know that we have forgiveness in our Lord. And the Holy Spirit empowers God's people to do that. That's why we can do it. It's not, it's not that we know better. It's not that we are a little bit more righteous than the wicked. No, it's because the Holy Spirit gives us the power to turn from that sin, repent, be forgiven, and continue on as children of God. Just as the first prologue of Judges proves that God does not abandon his people. God is not like a guilted lover who says, that's it, I'm done with you. I've given you you a chance, I've given you too many chances, I'm done giving you chances. God never says that to us. That's what's just amazing. I mean, I don't think a human being could just make something like that up. There would be an end to forgiveness. Like when the disciples asked the Lord, how many times should we forgive? Lord, seven times? Borrowing from a rabbinical saying, like, okay, that's it, number seven, click, tick that off, that's it, no more forgiveness for you, buddy. Number eight, you're out of here. Pack your stuff and leave. No, Jesus says, not seven, I tell you, but seven times seven. Seven times 77. It doesn't matter. He's saying, just wipe that out of your mind. Jesus gives them a number that says, as many times as it takes, completeness times completeness times fulfillment, is how many times you are to forgive. Because, children, that's how many times I, Jesus is speaking, will forgive you. What a blessing that is. And you know what? For me, when I hear that, when I understand that, it gives me a great desire to show my love to this wonderful Lord By doing what he says. By being obedient to him. Because if he loves us that much, where he will forgive us that much, then does not it make sense that whatever he commands us to do is in our best interests? And it's not a matter of he's just a killjoy and he wants to keep us from having fun. No, he knows what's best for us. And he loves us so much, he wants to keep us from that. That's what's Amazing about his plan of salvation. God loves you with an eternal love that will never fade. One iota. As as mortals, I don't even know if we can conceive that. I mean, I love my children and my grandchildren, just like I know you guys love your family just as much as I do. But there's times when they wear on you, you know? There's times like, you know, I wish this visit was over. I'm just kind of ready for this to be over. I love them, but I'll take a break and I'll come back later. God never feels that way. And I think that's amazing. Because I know how much I love my kids and my grandkids. But there's times when I feel like I'm at the end, you know? Thank the Lord I never come to the end. But you guys know what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. You've been there. So moving on in Judges, chapter 2, the second part of verse 1. And he said, that is the angel of the Lord said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. So the angel of the Lord attests here to leading the Israelites out of the captivity in Egypt. And in Exodus, chapter 3, verse 8, we read that it is Yahweh. God, the Lord God, who does this. Exodus 3 8 says, And I have come down, this is Yahweh speaking, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good land and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So the angel of the Lord declares it is he who swore to give the promised land to the forebears of the Israelites. This is the angel of the Lord saying, I'm giving you this land. In Genesis chapter 12, it is Yahweh who promises to give the land to Abraham. In Genesis 28, chapter 28, it is Yahweh who promises to give the land to Jacob. So my point is that we can readily see that in the Hebrew Bible... The Old Testament, Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh work in perfect unity, bringing about the decrees of Yahweh God, in blessing the people of Yahweh God. Which brings us to my second point, which is we must take care to not overly spiritualize God's actions into meaninglessness. His promises and blessings are meant for his people then, now, and in the future. What do I mean by this? <clears throat> I mean that God's actions have direct and meaningful impact on the world we now live in. As they did in the world that the Israelites lived in, and as they, they will in the world that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, etc., will live in. That God is not abstract and irrelevant to your daily life. And you can trick yourself into believing this by being attuned to what the world says and does, right? Let me use an illustration to kind of help demonstrate my point. So think of your life as an old-fashioned radio receiver. You guys remember those where you actually had to tune in stations and, and whatnot? I think a lot of you here are, are old enough um, those of you that are too young go home, get on Google and, and you'll, you know, Google that, you'll see a picture of it. <clears throat> so you adjust the dial to bring in radio signals, right? You set the dial to a powerful signal from God. You're receiving his message loud and clear but you stop paying attention to the receiver. Now the weird thing about these old radio receivers is remember how they would drift where you'd have a signal for a while and then you're not paying attention to it, and you lose the signal? Well, that's what can happen to us. If we're not paying attention, if we're not focused, the signal will drift, and it'll pick up a signal other than the one we wanted to listen to. In my illustration, it's the world signal, which is very, very strong. It has got all of the repeaters on Mount Wilson. It has got all of the the, 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 the megahertz or whatever... Radio guys call it that. Boom out those big signals. Like back in the day, where you could pick up radio signals from Mexico on the AM station, and you could listen to pirate. What they called pirate radio back then. It wasn't licensed by FCC. It wasn't it, and it wasn't. It was innocent compared to what now you hear on FCC licensed radio. So I don't know what the big deal was. But anyway. The signal fades out, this other signal comes in. Without realizing it, you're now listening to the world's message instead of God's message. Now think about this. Just because the radio waves are invisible to you doesn't mean they're not real, right? doesn't mean that, they, that they're not impacting you. So reality isn't always visible and tangible. So you must pay attention to your radio receiver. And keep your tuner focused on God and his word. And the author of Hebrews tells us why. Hebrews 4, 12-13, that unknown man writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. In other words, He's saying this is what we used to say in police work and the SWAT teams: "Is this is serious business? You know, this is no fooling stuff. Pay attention." And the angel of the Lord, we see, He continues on in the end of verse one in chapter two, in the beginning of verse two, and this is what the angel of the Lord says. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Okay, who makes a covenant? A normal average angel cannot make a covenant. Only God himself can make a covenant with his people. I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. So he declares that it is he who has entered into the covenant with Israel, that his covenant is inviolable. He will not break it. He is steadfastly loyal. He demonstrates chesed in Hebrew to those with whom he makes covenant. This is clearly a declaration of godship and lordship by the angel of Yahweh. He allows no covenant, as I said, between his people and the wicked inhabitants of the land as the Lord declared to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord declared to Moses, tell the people these things which we call the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 amongst the first in verses 2 and 5. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We've seen that the Israelites have violated this covenant. They've disobeyed. They've made covenants with the inhabitants of the land. They have not broken down the pagan altars in the land. Although they have partially done these things, God requires complete obedience. Obeying God once in a while or half the time, or even nine times out of ten is not enough. That's insufficient. Partial obedience is still disobedience. And the angel of the Lord confronts the Israelites directly with this. In the second part of verse 2 in chapter 2, he says, but you have not obeyed my voice what is this you have done the angel of the Lord what he's saying to them is you knew because I told you I made it clear what I required of you yet you disobeyed he has confronted them with their sin then he asks them this rhetorical question what is this you have done He knows what they did. Otherwise, he wouldn't be confronting them, right? And the Israelites know what they did. They know that because they did it. And because the angel of the Lord has told them what it is they did. So why does he ask them this question to which all know the answer? We talked about this on Wednesday night. It's for the same reason that God asked the woman in the Garden of Eden after she ate Of the fruit of the forbidden tree, God asks her, what is this that you have done? This is the first step in the process of redemption, this questioning. God confronts us with our sin, and we must admit that we have sinned. We must repent, and we must turn away from our sin. God knows this is the only way to salvation for us. So he makes sure that our sin confronts us. You've heard the old saying that, you know, your sin will always come out. Something along those lines. You're not going to get away uh, with it. And that is a blessing if you are a child of God. God is rescuing you by confronting you with your sin. And there are consequences to our sin, even if we have forgiveness for it. There's still consequences. We see this in verse 3 of chapter 2. The angel of the Lord continues and he says, So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. What's a snare? A snare is a trap of death for a wild animal. This is a serious thing. Actions have consequences. There is a price to pay for sin, and it is a heavy price. What does it mean when it is said that our sins are forgiven? I think it's important that we understand this clearly. And many people, I don't think here it's Sovereign Grace, but I think many people that are nominal Christians, let's say, or go to church occasionally, or have some idea of what Christianity, what they think it's about. It does not mean that God just ignores our wrongdoings like a kindly grandfather would. Like, I have a tendency to want to do with my grandkids if they do something wrong. I don't want to hold it against them. I come up with excuses for them. Our sins are forgiven, yes, but only because... God the Son has been punished for those sins. We can say we're forgiven because God transferred our guilt to Christ. Christ has borne our punishment. The penalty, the sin debt has been paid. We do not have to pay it. That's what forgiveness is in the Christian sense. It's not God turning a blind eye to what we've done. When we sin, that is something that is hated by God. But he loves us. Us, And he has a way to transfer this guilt from us and to give us the righteousness of God the Son. Jesus became sin for us, as the New Testament speaks of time and time again. Sin must be punished, and it is our Lord Jesus Christ who is punished for us. Even as Christians who are forgiven, washed by the blood of our Savior, and made righteous by Him, there are consequences for our sins. We're forgiven in an eternal sense, but sin impacts our lives in this present world. We cannot avoid that. Sin can set a pattern and a practice in your life that can be deadly. And your sinning, our sinning, grieves God. It hurts the people we love, our family and our friends. It makes our earthly life much more difficult. And its ramifications will spread far wider than we ever realize at first. And this is what the Israelites are going to realize. And we must realize within this group of the tribes of Israel, there are people of God. There is a group in there that are the elect of God, just as we are the elect of God. But they're caught up in all of this. And they are going to suffer along with the guilty, the wicked, who are mixed in with them at this time. In verse 4 of chapter 2, We read, As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They wept. The account of the angel of the Lord leading them out of Egypt and confronting Israel over their disobedience is attested to in the New Testament. In the fifth verse of the book of Jude, the Lord's half-brother whose name was really Judas, but Judas kind of had a bad connotation to it, you know? So they Hellenized the name to Jude. That was much easier to swallow than, you know, the Lord's brother Judas. Turn to the book of Judas. No, we're not going to turn to the book of Judas. We'll turn to the book of Jude. Jude, verse 5. <clears throat> Jude speaking to the church. This is a general letter. You see, it's going out not to just one person, not to just one church, but to the the Jewish Christians who were in dispersion, who had been spread all over the uh, Greco-Roman world. And Jude says to them, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, you you once fully knew this, but I have to remind you now that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Wait a minute. We just read it was the angel of Yahweh that led the people out of Egypt. And it's the angel of Yahweh who's calling them to account for their disobedience and their sin. It's the angel of Yahweh who is pronouncing judgment, earthly judgment, what they shall face on earth. But Jude is telling us it's Jesus who did that. Well, what do you know? That's why they say that the angel of Yahweh is the pre-incarnate son of God. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It's the visible Yahweh. We've talked about that. The invisible Yahweh, Father. The visible Yahweh, the Son. And Jews very clearly saying, you once knew this and you forgot it. I'm reminding you that it was Jesus who did this stuff. That brings us to our last point, point three. One's response to the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God in flesh, come to bring salvation to the world, reveals ultimate destiny. Jude clearly connects the angel of the Lord with Jesus Christ. He states that this was once widely known. Jude connects this belief that has been gradually forgotten and apparently discarded to the Israelites in Judges, who fully knew that the angel of the Lord was rescuing them from bondage in Egypt. And after one generation, we're going to see this in the near future, did not believe anymore. Apostasy came upon them after one generation. How quickly the people of God can lose their faith if it's not passed on to their children. The result of this rejection is something so well attested. Results in destruction. Destruction. And the one who brings salvation from bondage is the one who also brings the destruction. And notice what Jude says is the cause for the destruction. It is for not believing. Unbelief is a sin. Although this is obviously true of the scoffer who is outside the church, that's not who Jude is writing to. That's not who Jude is speaking of. Jude is speaking Of those in the church. That's what he's concerned with. The reference to physical Israel's unbelief is connected to unbelief within spiritual Israel. He bookends this in his letter to false teachers of ungodly sensuality in verse 4 that comes before this. And then after this, to angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. These are categories he's using of those who once knew, and once knew rightly, but act in disbelief. Those who have no excuse because they should know, they did know, and yet they disobeyed. And to wrap up, the first prologue, verse 5. And they called the name of that place Bokem, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Israel's response to the speech of the angel of the Lord is dramatic and impressive. They weep over their words. So impactful is this that they name the place they are in Bokem, which means place of weeping. And they offer sacrifices to Yahweh. And from these actions, it appears that the repentance is genuine. They seem to acknowledge that they have fallen short of the covenant obligations that have been placed upon them and declare their devotion to Yahweh by these sacrifices. However, this is the sad part. This is the last time in Judges that Israel will respond this way to their sin. And like many revivals, subsequent events will prove how short-lived this revival actually was. It's a sad thing. With that, we end our first prologue in Judges, and we will pick up with the second prologue next time. Uh, join me in prayer and we're, uh, we're going to have the lord's tu- uh, supper tonight Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word Father we ask that we reflect upon this horror of disobedience father that we that that it just be washed and purged from us if we struggle with it father I pray for my brothers and sisters I pray for myself that we will be in in Perfect human obedience to your will, that we will have conscious remembrance of this, Father. Especially now as we uh, approach the table, Father, um, this time where we we can share in communion, just communication with our our Lord, Father. Bless this night. We give thanks for it. I give thanks for my brothers and sisters, Father. um, Bless them as they go through their week that we may meet again on the next Lord's Day and worship and glorify you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.